In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Presenter pay cuts, staff reductions and the expansion of regional operations, RTE finally unveils its long-anticipated strategic plan for the future of the broadcaster. I made it really clear that when contracts come up for renewal, they will not be any more than Director General. It's not about me, it's about the Director General's um, salary. Several Irish citizens could be on a list to exit Gaza via the Rafah crossing tomorrow. Meanwhile, the WHO announces 60% of hospitals in Gaza are now non-functional. That original right to defend itself has now become, in my view, a war on children. Um, and you cannot build peace on the mass graves of children. And winter is coming as COVID and RSV cases rise during the cold weather. How well are we equipped No one to earn more than the Director General. Earlier today, RTE DG Kevin Backhurst addressed staff at a town hall where he outlined the strategic vision for the broadcaster's future in the aftermath of the payment scandal. Staff reductions of up to 400 people, a push to outsource more content to independent production companies and a renewed emphasis on regional operations were some of the measures discussed. But what will all of this mean for the future of the organisation? We'll here to discuss this further in studio. I'm joined by Fianna Foyle TD. Christopher O'Sullivan, author and former government minister Shane Ross, former RTE correspondent Kieran Malouli, and chair of the RTE sub branch of the NUJ, Trevor Keegan. You're all very welcome to the programme. I want to start with you first, Trevor, as somebody who's there in RTE. You attended that town hall today. Give me an idea of the mood amongst staff. Well, this is the document. It's quite a colourful piece, as you can see, but unfortunately lacking in black and white detail, which is what we are disappointed about. We're gravely concerned. The staff, beyond despair yesterday when the leaks started coming out, um, and there's still no clear scenario about how these 400 redundancies were reached in the first place in the minds of the management, but also how they will be reached physically. They told us today about 160 people will, by natural progression, be kind of reaching retirement or near retirement age in the coming few years. It's a five-year process that they're planning to get these reductions of 400. So there's this hope that these people will want to go early. Some probably will do. But there's also scepticism because if there's a voluntary redundancy scheme, the last one is now being investigated because we know that the so-called parameters of it weren't adhered to. So there is obviously ongoing staff scepticism about this process and how it will kind of tally in the big scheme of things as well. So clearly a lack of faith and a lack of, of well, trust Well, hardly there. surprising at this stage that we've lost faith in management a long time ago. Um, Kevin Backhurst wasn't part of that process that ended or started all of this whole debacle. But, um, you know, I think goodwill is starting to wear a little bit thin. 
Uh, fear of job losses, clearly, but also a real fear today of outsourcing of the jobs. Yeah, and we, actually, I have a very good experience of working in the independent sector. I'm not going to land base to all independent companies when I say this, but unfortunately, a lot of them are operating to a very tight baseline. So if you're working, say, as I was as a producer, you're not just a producer, you suddenly become the production manager doing budgets. You suddenly become the tea maker as well because we don't have people to greet guests or something. So it's a very limited scope they have in terms of, you know, it's kind of the gig economy. You're also working from gig to gig to gig. And you're not going to have the pay, the pay rights and the statutory rights that you would normally get in a workplace like RTE. I wanted to get into RTE and a lot of people working in that sector want to get into RTE for the safety sake and the security of tenure and also then the, the bigger scope of creativity that you have with them. Um, is there a sense that this plan is a bit doomed if he doesn't have the support of staff? And how far, I suppose, are staff willing to go to resist the plan that Kevin Backhurst outlined today. We have to kind of gauge how far the staff are willing to go because literally it was only released to the staff at about half three, four o'clock when we were in the middle of the meeting and started to trickle through to our emails. So the staff, we have to talk to our union members, for instance, for the NUJ. SIP2 are doing likewise. I know they have an emergency motion that passed, I think, today as well. Uh, yeah, where they're calling Pulling for back resistance. for resistance to the redundancies as well. We haven't spoken to our membership yet and we will do so in the coming days as well to gauge their kind of general feel about it. Would you wouldn't rule out anything at this point, would Nothing's you? off the table at this stage, and how could it be? Because literally nothing's off the table from the management side either. All right, Kieran Mullooly, one of the others was headline um, things to come out of this report today was that comment that we saw at the top of the programme from Kevin Backhurst, nobody in this organisation is going to earn more than me or more than the Director General, which is 250,000. So we know that that is definitely going to affect some of their top stars. Is that a positive thing? It, it is. I mean, it, it's, it, had to ha it had to happen, Kira. I sat here a couple of months ago and said, how are they going to restore trust? How are they going to persuade people who are not paying the television licence that they're going to pay it again? They've got to come back to reality. They're in deep trouble. We've heard today about their 40 million, up to 60 million of difficulties in terms of the licence. So they had to do this. You know, some of these contracts are coming to an end anyway. And we've seen with the Ryan Tuberty situation that Backhurst put down, it set the bar at that stage. He, he told Ryan Tuberty what he would pay him to come back. So they've no one at this point. Now, for the presenters involved, I'm sure there are going to be difficult decisions over the coming months. But and for, it is, for, it's only, just to be clear at this point, it's three presenters in RTE that are earning in excess of 250,000. So there's not huge savings to be made but it's the look of it, is it? Listen, Kevin Backhurst had a job today. He had to get the message across that we are changing things. I mean, I had to, I had to laugh at once during the presentation this afternoon. There was an announcement about a new disinformation correspondent in the organisation. If they had that person perhaps on duty over the last two years, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today. We might have known how Ryan Tuberty was paid uh, in the first instance. Are there other people, though, within the organisation, forgetting about the on-air people, who are any in excess of 250,000? Oh, I mean, I think... Uh, the we focus I'm... on the stars a lot, don't we? Yeah. Stars, talent, presenters, call them what you want. But he did talk about but... middle management. Some managers who are on over 100,000 that they are going to specifically target in the, in the redundancy scheme and hope that they will you know, sign up to it. But if you're on 100,000 plus and you're my age, mid-40s, whatever, you, you, don't, you have mortgages too and commitments, etc. You're not necessarily going to want to leave the building because you're going into a sector that is fraught with instability as well and lack of security. So I'm not too sure how much goodwill in terms of managers signing up to that they'll experience. Yeah, and they mightn't be 
quite as able to secure that 100,000 in exactly. that independent sector as they do in RTE. Um, Shane, lots been made, I suppose, of this figure, this 400 figures. But we heard Kevin Backer saying earlier um, today, 150, 160 perhaps coming from retirements. There'll be some natural attrition as well. You feel the whole idea or the whole issue around staff cuts has actually been a bit overblown? Well, I think that they, they have to come out with a figure to, to kind of... Because they're going to walk walk away from that figure. It's going to be much less than that. And he already said that. He said it's going to be 400. And he said, actually, that's only 250. So that's an attempt to keep the staff happy. I think the staff are the losers today and Kevin Backers are the winner, to be quite honest. What happened here today was, was an extraordinary thing. Yesterday, the Taoiseach said on the record that the this strategic vision document would not be discussed at the Cabinet. So going into the Cabinet meeting, it wasn't going to be discussed. It came out afterwards. They had promised not 15 million, but 65 million, or 55 million, uh, to RTE. And it was unconditional. He said, it. what happened then was the t Okay, now I want to just to stick yeah. to the issue of, this, of the cuts, I suppose, oh, the sorry. outsourcing yeah. of the cuts, and we'll come to the funding in a second. Yeah. Um, and and on, on the other cuts, yes, I think they... I think, I think they, there's a lot of window dressing in there. There's a, there, there's a lot of things which are, which are, um, which are, which are important. But that's so, what, what Kevin was saying there, it's, it was so incredibly lacking in detail that they can change this at any stage down the line. The, the 400 figure is just a, a figure which they've thrown out there, but it's up, it's up for grabs. As he said there, you might get more, you might get, you might get less. Uh, the, they're all, the regional spread is, is something which they'll get down to in detail as well. The 10 million cost, he wouldn't talk about. The channel's gone, yes, that's probably, that's probably true. The top people's pay, Yes, OK, but there's nothing radical here. This is something where, which they can fiddle around with a bit, but there's no detail at all. And yet, Christopher Sullivan, I think you feel that there are questions to be asked over this 400 figure. You're not comfortable with that. Do you want them to reverse that? No, and I think uh, your, your question there in relation to how far uh, staff are willing to go is, is a key question. Um, before uh, any Oireachtas committees see this, and I'm on the, the media committee, and before, I suppose, Cabinet make any decisions on it, I think it's vitally important that there's consultation uh, with staff. Uh, that there's feedback from staff. Are they comfortable with this? What measure, what, what aspects of this aren't they comfortable with? We're, we're already hearing that. So I don't, for, for one minute, see this as, as a final document, as a final decision. Uh, I think there but has to be... Do you accept, though, that given what Kevin Backer said today, there needs to be efficiencies in this organisation. We need to change the way we operate. Staff costs are 51% of RTE's costs. We can't change the organisation without tackling that. Do you accept that? I accept that, but 20% is an extraordinary uh, figure in terms of... of so you think it's too losses. high? I, I do think it's too high. I don't see how RT can function and can keep up the same level of quality programming and productions uh, with uh, thin-down staff. Uh, so obviously there has to be... There, there has to be uh, uh, people let go in some way, shape or form, but where are they let go? If it's voluntary redundancies, what happens if everybody goes from the same department? You're going to see the quality of programming that RT have been renowned for a suffer. I don't see how it can be sustained. Uh, what I do like about it, the vision... You know, he has said today, it's still a substantial organisation in terms of when you, when you compare it to other media organisations in this country, you're talking 1,800 people and take 20% out of that. It is still big, but 20% is in terms of any reform or any reshaping of an organisation is huge. I, I, there has to be corporate governance. That's a key part of, of, of this report. Um, and I do like the, uh, I suppose, decentralisation of a lot of the productions, getting, letting Cork, Limerick, Galway get a chunk of, of the action there as well. I slightly disagree in terms of that, that uh, funding that is intended for 
uh, the independent sector. Um, while I absolutely agree, I understand the security that working with it in, in RT provides in terms of pensions, etc., I know that there are people as well who are happy in the ind independent sector. We have a thriving independent sector. And I'm thinking of shows like Ken O'Sullivan's Ireland's Deep Atlantic, which was an extraordinary independent production backed by RT. I would love to see those types of productions get But you can be guaranteed, Christopher, that there's people on those productions who will work for three months, possibly, maybe a month pre-production, a month post-production, and then they're gone. And I have friends in this sector, we, are, we have staff in RT who have partners in this sector who are scurrying around and fighting and hustling for jobs in this sector. Yes, it is a thriving sector, but each independent company is fighting with each other to try and secure contracts with mainly RTE. Okay, I just want to move on to this issue of the short-term interim funding that was announced today that seemed to sort of come out of nowhere, 56 million. And... I heard Pascal Donoghue speaking, I heard the Taoiseach speaking, Kieran Mullally talking about, but there's conditions. There's conditions there attached no conditions. to this. Yeah, well, what are there, they? There are no conditions whatsoever. I, I think all, all, this, all this happening, so just want to say, all this, all, this, all this happening there is they're saying the conditions are going to be set after they get the reports. But the money will be spent by then. It's 40 million that's got to tide them over. Well, I, I think, in fairness, they're only yeah. getting 15, 60 million up to the end of the year for starters. So yeah, but the 16 next, million next year, to the end of the next, year. Next year's fund, we're going to have the two reports in the meantime. Yeah. But the, the other thing about it, looking back tonight, I mean, now, now all of a sudden the future broadcasting comes back into it again. Kevin Backhurst is saying this keeps us afloat, effectively. He's saying, unless we get the full investment, 300 million in the, me, in the media sector next year, the deal is off. That's, he seems to be throwing it back at the government tonight, yeah, which I think in his behalf is quite a cunning move. To Christopher, to the 56 million, which is not an insubstantial amount of money to be handing to a media organisation in this country. Is it dependent on the cost-cutting measures that he outlined today for next year, the 10 million cuts and the 40 redundancies? Yeah, I, I think I disagree with Shane there in terms of that it's it's without conditions. Uh, this is going to be released in tranches, as in the full 40 million isn't going to be released at the start of 2024 and they're allowed to operate uh, as they wish. It, it. You mentioned the redundancies. I think it's more dependent on... Uh, uh, the DG and RT being able to prove that there will be new corporate governance, that there'll be transparency, uh, that we won't have a repeat of what we've seen over the last six months in terms of sweet deals and and uh, payment arrangements that are not transparent and we're still trying to get minutes of, of meetings, etc., that there'll be full transparency. I think that's what it's more dependent on and on the release of the three um, specialist reports that we're due to see uh, at the start of next year in February, I believe. Now, the, the conditions, it was quite specific today. That, that there were not going to be any conditions. And they were wobbling around about it afterwards because they promised there would be any. But they couldn't specify that there were any. Because what happened today, Chris, and you know that because you were in Leinster House, was they went into the Cabinet and they said they weren't going to discuss it. They came out and they said, we'll give you the 40 million and we'll make it conditional later because they were on the run. And the reason they were on the run was because, because the politicians had leaked this overnight and they were frightened about what you guys... I, I'm just, I'm referring, the, well, I, just one second. Well, the guys in the unions were going to say, so they had to get, they had to get this over the line immediately. And that's yeah, what there was I, no I, sense today, Christopher, from all the interviews I listened to, that this funding, the 56 million this year, next year, that that's in jeopardy in any way. I think that the... The relevant minister, Catherine Martin... I think the relevant minister, One thing that is in jeopardy still is the licence fee. This is still the big issue for RT going forward. So to go back to the issue about the future, I mean, there's a great line, it sounds great, we'll be... We'll be a better custodian of public funding. It's up at the top of the strategy today. The public will watch this very, very carefully now in terms of changes. If changes don't happen, they will not pay their licence fee. And RT will continuously be in problems going forward. You, well, you they were, cannot operate without the licence fee. You were there today, Trevor. This document was called, I think, New Direction. Did you get a sense... New Direction, yeah. <laughs> ..of a new vision for RT that they are clear about what it is to be a public sector broadcaster, what they 
prioritise, what public money is used to fund, what is kept in-house, what is outsourced. Did you get that you see, vision? There is a sense, and I think this is predominant among staff as well, we are sure about what our public service remit is. We do stuff that, unfortunately, Kira, places like this can't do because we are custodians of that public service <clears throat> money, basically. We can do things like Nature Nights and Radio 1 there a few weeks ago. We can do, you know, Dawn Chorus. We can do the big stuff that isn't necessarily commercially beneficial to companies like Virgin or, say, your news talks, etc. But unfortunately today, there was still no clear about this outsourcing of certain productions. Some in-house productions, we were told, might go outside. Somebody asked the question directly, will Fair City, for instance, be one of those? And unfortunately, I was just literally having to leave it as that happened. And Kevin's response was, I won't say an answer yes or no to that because we haven't decided. Well, and because I think he said we haven't consulted with those programmes. Yes, but program those programme teams now have a, an axe hanging slightly closer to their heads, possibly. OK, what he did also say, let's just take a look at the clip, because what he did <clears> also <throat> say about the rest of the plan looking beyond 2025 was very interesting. This whole strategic plan is based on the future of media uh, commission proposals for the level of funding for RTE and for public service media um, and we will deliver it if we're given the funding and we will serve, serve audiences um, spectacularly well if we can do that. So he made that point, Shane Ross, repeatedly today. Does he have the government over a barrel here a little bit? Absolutely, totally. He's got them completely over a barrel because, because he said, look, it, it's up to you guys now. You're going to have to decide on the funding. And Catherine Martin came out today and she said, we are going to make a decision on this in 2024, right? And don't, After the don't, election yeah, or before yeah, the election, Exactly. Shane, and then she says, and then she says, but it won't be implemented till 2025. Yeah. This is a fudge. This is putting this off. We are not going to see the new funding model until there's an election because that involves an unpopular decision. Yeah, let's be clear, Christopher. At the very latest, we're looking at an election in February 2025. The government are saying this won't be implemented until 2025. You think this is going to be implemented right before an election? Are you just kicking the can down the road as this government and previous governments have done time and time again when it comes to deciding on the funding model for RTE? I know you won't believe me when I say this, uh, but I, and I have called for Catherine Martin to make a decision on this. We had her in the Oireachtas Committee recently uh, and I repeatedly called that we need to make a decision. I, I even asked her what her preferred option was. Um, and listen, I understand, didn't get an answer because it, uh, it obviously has to be discussed further. The, but. the staff will continue to pay the price here and the public as well, unfortunately, because core services cannot be maintained at the level they're at at the moment if staff are going to be reduced and funding is which, still not whichever, up to par. Whichever but option. Staff, through lack of governance and political direction, will suffer badly because of this. And, and that's evidence today, Kira. And also, uh, Kevin made it specifically clear that the money he's getting will last us till the end of 2024. So there's going to be another problem yeah. as we hit no, There'll be emergency I, I, funding. There'll be further I, emergency, what they call interim funding about this time next year. Wait and see, it's absolutely certain. I'm not, I'm not on my own in calling for an answer on this. I know whatever option we take, it's going to be unpopular, whether it's this talk of a device charge, which I'm not a fan of myself because I think we'll go down like a lead balloon, like the household charge. Mm. Um, or my preferred option would be some type of uh, taxation and funded through the Exchequer. Direct That's, Exchequer funding, which that, Michael McGrath sat in that seat and said, absolutely not. You're talking exactly maybe going to 300 million but you euros. But you, you have differing views within government parties. My colleague Malcolm Byrne is also... Uh, a fan of the uh, exchequer funding, Michal, uh, Martin, the, the Tanishta isn't. So, I mean, fair enough, th there isn't an agreed position, we'll say, within my party, but it, whatever decision we make, it's, it's going to be a this difficult is the problem. one. There's no but agreed we... positions. There's funding models across Europe. There's about 20, 31 EBU members. Have, some of them have varying different funding models, particularly, say, Norway and Finland. And Finland has a, uh, twice the salary or staff numbers that we have in YLE. But, of course, 
they also have 500 million euro funding because of the taxation the way they do taxation, it. Yeah. You know, so... Mm. Uh, there are systems there that are working or variations that can work. So let's to be clear, what we saw today is not enough to put RTE on a stable footing, Shane Ross. No, absolutely. No question of it. They haven't even started. This is only enough to, to rescue them temporarily out of the problem. I think there's a bank manager or something they, they were sitting back in, in RTE and saying, fantastic, we, we've got the security now for, for loans and borrowings going forward. But that's all it is. It's at the end of next year, and as I say, unless the next package arrives, unless the funding... And it, won't, it will not arrive. Let's be straight about it. That's mm-hmm. why we are where we are. Yeah. The politicians like Shane and his yeah. cabinet as well sat there didn't make the decisions because it wasn't politically uh, and, acceptable. And yeah, yeah, you accept that, Shane Ross, cabinets, including your own, said, no, push this down the road. This is another Absolutely. water charges. Absolutely. And, and on top of that, this problem has existed since 1961 when Telefigeren was actually formed and nobody has tried to tackle it at all. But just because yeah. the government didn't cause the lack of confidence that are as there in RT now that has caused the drop of 21 million in revenue from licence fees. That was done, that was caused by management and mismanagement within RT. It's a perfect that storm of management and political. And, and, the, right. and the final thing I say is this, if I may, Kira, the, 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 the really fundamental problem of the board hasn't been tackled at all. The corporate right. government hasn't even been tackled for one second. We'll get back to that issue on another night. My thanks to um, Kieran and to Trevor for coming in to me this evening. Coming up after the break, Joe Biden states that Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital must be protected. And this evening we hear that Irish passport holders on the Gaza Strip, a number of them, may be allowed to leave across the Rafa crossing tomorrow. We'll bring you the very latest on that story. Very welcome back. Now to some breaking news. We can reveal that Ibrahim Malaga, Hamida Alaga, and their three children, Sami, Eileen, and Omar, are on the list to leave Gaza via the Rafa crossing tomorrow. Speaking to Virgin Media News this evening, Mr. Alaha thanked the people of Ireland for their support and asked for prayer. All are looking forward to their return to Dublin. Meanwhile, US intelligence states that Hamas does have a base under the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City, as medics there have been forced to bury over 200 bodies on the hospital grounds. We're going to go live to Jerusalem, where Neuro News correspondent Shona Murray is standing by. Shona, let's just go, I suppose, to that US intelligence saying that they feel they have their own separate intelligence, which would point to the fact that there is um, a Hamas base underneath Al-Shifa hospital. How significant is that? And can you bring us up to date on conditions within Al-Shifa hospital, which appear to be deteriorating every single Mm. day. Yes, this is something the New York Times is reporting. Um, It is is really part of the context of the attacks on the Shifa hospital from the Israeli Defence Forces, which have been intensifying over the past few weeks. Israel has said that Hamas and the Al-Qassam brigades have been operating there and potentially underneath there. Um, And so, obviously, that's the reason why they're trying to target the hospital. The question is about proportionality, though, because even if there are um, military personnel or Hamas terrorists within the hospital, the Israelis have an obligation to protect human life and minimize uh, civilian casualties. And what we're seeing in the Shifa hospital um, is not that. We've seen that we've over 1,500 people sheltering there uh, away from the bombardment 
We've seen babies uh, dying there in the last few days and in several injuries. Um, as we heard from U.S. President Barack Obama, the situation in Gaza is unbearable. Of course, if it's found uh, definitely that Hamas does have operations underneath there, the Israelis are well entitled to attack uh, the, the hospital, well, I mean, around the hospital at least, because hospitals actually have protective status under inter international humanitarian law. But it really is part and parcel of this gruesome war where Hamas is known to use pe uh, people as human shields, but also fire from heavily, densely populated areas. You mentioned there... In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG the desire to try and protect human life. But we have the World Health Organization saying that 60% of hospitals now in the Gaza Strip are non-functional and the others are on their knees. They're on their knees completely. I mean, what I've heard today from agencies working, medical agencies working in Gaza is that women are delivering to cesarean section without anesthetics. Uh, that there are uh, newborn babies in incubators, uh, premature babies, three of whom have died in the last few days. There are Tens, there are thousands of people who have died, thousands of children who have died. There is no fuel and uh, medical care, water, uh, water sanitation. It doesn't apply. And when we've heard from Israel is they have delivered canisters of fuel outside the Shifa hospital in the past few days. The Israelis are saying that they didn't, um, that they weren't taken uh, by the doctors, by the hospital. The hospital is saying that there wasn't enough uh, fuel there. I mean, even the idea, you know, that humanity has gotten to the point where canisters of diesel or outside a hospital to keep people alive. It's really just breathtaking. And, you know, when we hear from the Israelis, they're saying that this is not a, an operation like we've seen before in 2014 or 2008, that um, Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is saying this is a war to end all wars and they won't end until uh, Hamas are killed or the hostages are released. Um, and so they're looking at at least a few more weeks. That's what they're saying now anyway. And meanwhile, in Israel, efforts continue to try and identify the remains of some of those people who were killed on October 7th. That's right, actually. You know, unfortunately, it's happening to Israeli families that they thought their loved ones were kidnapped in Gaza, but now they're going through the remains and the DNA and they're finding bodies that were um, really badly dismembered and they're realising that they weren't uh, kidnapped. But the families, there's around 241 people who have been kidnapped. They're putting huge pressure on the government. There have been reports this week that there is momentum behind the negotiations to release the hostages. But of course, you know, nothing can, I suppose nothing can be agreed until everything is agreed regarding that. We've heard from Hamas, for example, who said it offered 100 hostages 
um, in exchange for the release of some Palestinian prisoners and a ceasefire. But the Israelis are saying no, they want all the prisoners. The feeling in Israel is that if there is a ceasefire against Gaza, that quote, as one Israeli said to me today, uh, the world won't let us recontinue. They won't allow them to start the bombardment. And Israelis are really shocked. They're completely withdrawn. They never felt their security was going to be in jeopardy uh, the way it was on October 7th. And they're frightened. And so even though we are seeing all of the horrors of what the Israeli uh, defense forces are doing in Gaza, what they're thinking about is their security and, of course, their loved ones uh, to be released. Right, Shona Murray, thank you for bringing us uh, that update. Uh, well, I'm also joined by experienced mediator and co-founder and director of Forward Thinking, Oliver McTiernan, who is also in Jerusalem. Lovely to speak you, to you as always. Uh, Shona there, mentioning some momentum when it comes to um, negotiations around hostage releases. What can you tell us? Well, I'm surprised to hear that because I think in the current circumstances with the level of the bombardment continuing, the attacks on the hospital, I cannot see without a ceasefire any progress whatsoever being made on the release of the hostages. I wish I could think different, but frankly, I don't. The, as said before, you can't set incompatible targets to say your first target is to eliminate Hamas, then to release the hostages. It's not possible. You won't release hostages through a military action without putting their lives in danger and in the lives of thousands of other people in danger. And yet we had the US President Joe Biden saying today when he was asked a question, is there any update on the hostages? He replied, I tell them, hang on in there, we're coming, as if to suggest that some progress was being made. Frankly, I don't know who advises President Biden, but I would say that they have little or no knowledge of the realities of life in Gaza, and especially life under the bombardment that we're witnessing. Um, I really find it reprehensible when our leaders who say they adhere to values and principles based on common humanity are allowing such um, acts of barbarity in the sense we see that we've, we've lost 4,000 plus children. Um, it's just we see unraveling before our eyes our sense of our, our common humanity. And I think I would expect much more from President Biden than just sound bites. If, if they were serious about the release of the hostages, securing the safety of the 2.3 million people in Gaza, then I think he would be engaged in more serious conversations. And that doesn't allow for the sort of sound bites that we got from him this evening. Um, we saw families of the hostages take to the streets again in Jerusalem, chanting, you know, we want them free, bring them home, bring them home. And they seem to suggest, we see uh, footage of them now, that the hostages were not a priority for Netanyahu and that they had no sense of Israel having a plan, a strategy to try and bring these hostages home? Well, you know, we heard Tom Han too saying, you know, I want to hug my Emily again. And I think everyone has empathy for that, as we have empathy for the thousands of Palestinian families who've lost their children or relatives in this current um, activity, action. Um, of course, the the 
voice of the families are extremely important. But in the current climate where the Western leaders in particular don't seem to be listening or putting our human values first, I am really would question the impact that will have on the decision makings regarding a ceasefire. I think unless there is a, an imminent ceasefire, I fear all of the hostages, as well as God knows how many thousands more Palestinian lives in Gaza are put at risk. Um, Netanyahu has, we've read, rejected the idea of a ceasefire in exchange for hostages in the past. Do you think there's any movement there? Well, again, you know, it's it's just, I, I know Gaza fairly well. I've been there, God knows how many times, well over maybe 200 times in the last 20 years. I just cannot see how people can, um, you know, say, well, we're going to pursue with um, the our, our war effort, and at the same time, we're going to release the hostages. It's incompatible, I think, and that needs to be. And it, you know, I've been here in Israel the last couple of days. Once very aware of the level of trauma felt at every um, level of Israeli society, and and one understands that and empathizes with it, but. It's at a time like this that Israel needs real friends, not political expediency, but real friends, people who say to them, look, you're traumatized, you're acting in a way now that you may regret later. We say that to anyone who is a friend and we see traumatized. We try to restrain their actions. Okay, um, I and I, I feel that's not happening because I think political expediency, political judgments are put before what should be our basic principles, a, a respect for our common humanity. We seem to have lost those at this point. Uh, Oliver McTiernan, thank you for speaking to us. Shane, I wonder, is the Irish relationship with the Palestinian authorities useful at all when it comes to securing the release of Emily Hunt? Well, we'll find out, I suppose. We'll find out in the next day or two. But um, I think probably the, the Irish government finds itself in a difficult situation at the moment. It's coming under fire from both sides on this. Uh, it's coming under fire, obviously, in the in the Doyle from Sinn Féin and from the Social Democrats on the motions that are coming up about expelling the Israeli ambassador and on the criminal court. It's coming under fire, obviously, from Israel as well. And as you see, we've been we've been described as you know the most anti-Israel country in Europe. I I think that what Michal Martin is doing is right, and I think he's being very restrained and very responsible. And I think. If we can play any role, and we shouldn't exaggerate, by the way, our role. What our role is to is to get our, get our hostages and our people out. Obviously, if Michal Martin can exert any influence at this stage, I suppose it would be on the Palestinian side. Yes, and I think that's the role he should be doing. I think he should be saying to them, "Yes, you, you know, let let the hostages go. Act in a humanitarian way yourself." Because I think we are probably seen. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I think we're seen as a friend of Palestine rather than a friend of Israel, yes. Um, Christopher, because we were probably seen as a friend of Palestine and not a friend uh, of Israel, as Shane says, there were questions about whether or not Irish passport holders in Gaza, and we believe there's about 40 of them that are looking to leave, were being fair, unfairly treated because their name didn't seem to be on a list. It is a positive to see that that family will get to leave Gaza tomorrow. 
Yeah, it is, it is a positive in, in the midst of this humanitarian uh, catastrophe, um, the deaths, the, the death toll, the, the um, shocking scenes that we're seeing from Gaza and from the El Shifa hospital. Um, it is positive to hear that has been developed in terms of getting those passport holders uh, across the Rafa crossing, I'd imagine. And obviously I can't confirm this, but that there was some um, diplomatic uh, back channels been used uh, in order to, to secure that. I think that underlines the importance of keeping uh, um, diplomatic channels open. Um, as much as, for example, I would disagree um, and don't like what the Israeli ambassador has to say, um, I think it's important that we, we uh, keep those diplomatic channels open for these type of incidents and, and it, it applies as well to uh, the release of Emily Hand. Okay, I just want to go to uh, Medicine Sun Frontier, um, to Dr Tanya Hassan, who I think is joining us um, on the line now. You are lovely, thank you, um, Tanya. I think so many of us here are really invested in Al-Shifa Hospital and the plight of all of the patients there, but in particular, uh, Dr. Hajj, the plight of all of those newborn babies who were forced to leave their incubators. Um, can you bring us any update on their condition and indeed the conditions within Al-Shifa Hospital this evening? Yeah. Uh, I can paint a picture for you. It's a very horrifying picture, so I'm going to warn the the audience in advance. But Al Shifa Hospital is under complete siege. It's surrounded by tanks, uh, medical staff, uh, including members of Doctors Without Borders, are present in the hospital at the moment. There are patients in critical condition, and thousands of displaced individuals still within the premises. They cannot leave. Uh, they have described trying to leave and being shot at as soon as they uh, try and exit the hospital. They've described having injured people in the courtyard just outside of the hospital that they have tried to reach to bring into the hospital to treat, but that as soon as the ambulances try and retrieve them or they try and retrieve them personally, they are shot at. They have been shot out through the windows. There have been um, at least two nurses and, if, and multiple patients that have been shot through the windows. They've also described multiple, over 100 dead bodies lying on the ground, uh, decomposing, that they are unable to bury, and they've started to try and bury them in the garden of the hospital. They cannot cool the morgue be, due to the lack of electricity to preserve these bodies. And when they have tried to bury them outside of the hospital, again, they have been targeted. Um, they, there have been horrifying descriptions of dogs coming to the bodies, the decomposing bodies. I know this paints a really awful picture, but just, just so everyone really appreciates the dire situation that we're, we're in, this unprecedented, uh, horrifying uh, situation that we're in. Everyone in the hospital has obviously no access to food, water. They said that, and this was two days ago now, that they were living off of the remaining biscuits and dates that were inside the hospital. They have no access uh, to water either. And they're completely cut off. Uh, they don't have internet. We've been struggling to co contact them. We intermittently get contact with them. And, you know, a, a lot of what I'm sharing with you comes directly from uh, Médecins Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, but also from contacts that I have from years of visiting it, visiting Gaza to teach uh, under, un, under a, a different role that I have. Um, it's, it's really a horrifying picture. You mentioned the neonates. Uh, yes, there are... are um, 30-some premature infants in the hospital at the moment that have been removed from their incubators, disconnected from oxygen when the oxygen supply was targeted, and are now all congregated together 
uh, the staff are trying very hard to keep the babies warm so they don't get hypothermic, a well-known risk in, in very small premature babies and the reason that we keep them in incubators. Um, and, and multiple of those, those newborns have, have since died. But I want to I, I want to point out as much as you know I'm a pediatrician as much as I care about the well-being of these babies there there are are hundreds of patients in this hospital, and and staff workers who are also at risk, and this is one of many hospitals who who have been placed in the same situation. This isn't a single hospital because I keep hearing people refer to it. It's a very awful dire situation at El Shifa. But the situation at Al-Rantisi, Al-Nasr, Psychiatric Hospital, Al-Quds, Al-Aqsa, Al-Ahli, all of the hospitals are in a, in a terribly dire situation and, and all of them are being targeted. I did hear um, Dr. Hajj, one doctor this evening, describing the medicine that they are having to practice on their wounded, on the injured people as medieval. Yeah, and I've I've heard a lot of descriptions that that frankly make the medicine there seem very barbaric, but their hands are completely tied. If you don't have access to pain relief, for example, I mean you have a UK trained doctor that's or you have multiple UK trained doctors, but you have one UK based doctor who's there at the moment who is describing having to do dressing changes that he would normally do with a patient fully asleep. He's having to do them without any pain control. I mean, that is horrifying. I'm, I'm a, an intensive care doctor. I was taking care of burn patients overnight last night on my shift, not in Gaza. And I will tell you that we, we, had, we spoke at length about the, the importance of keeping the patients asleep and, and, and with very, very strong pain control due to the depth and the, the profound uh, pain associated with burns. I think this is a natural, this, this is just uh, one of our most important roles as, as physicians and, and healthcare providers in general is to relieve the suffering of our patients. Here, and, Dr. And Hodge, they, so many of those patients in Gaza, the thing that has really struck me are children, are young children. Oh, thousands, thousands. I mean, we talk about almost 5,000 children that have been killed. That's excluding the children whose bodies are trapped under the rubble and cannot be retrieved. But then there's there's tens of thousands that are injured. We know that already that there are, there, I mean, we don't have statistics from the last several days because we've been left in the darkness um, with all the healthcare facilities that have been targeted, communication that has been targeted. The Ministry of Health hasn't even been able to count the deaths and the injured in the last few days. But up until that point, we know we, know we had well over 20,000 uh, severe, severely injured uh, individuals um, who, who are, are bound to be suffering, particularly when they don't have access to care. And you know, the targets are continuing. I can give you the latest update from Doctors Without Borders. Uh, this is just today. Bullets were fired into one of three MSF Doctors Without Borders premises near Al Shifa Hospital, where um, MSF staff and their families were sheltering. There were over 100 people there, including 65 children. They ran out of food since yesterday night. We've been trying to evacuate them, MSF has, for the past three days. We've been asking uh, for their safe passage. And thousands of civilians, medical staff, patients are still trapped in that hospital in these facilities near the hospital near the hospital Dr. Hajj uh, and I really do appreciate you taking the time to speak to us uh, I know there's a lot of demands um, for your time we just have to leave that there for now Dr. Tanya Hajj from Medicine Sanford Terrace Doctors Without 
borders. We're going to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to uh, Shane and to Christopher. We will be returning to it on tomorrow night's programme. After the break, we get the very latest on the news. Um, sorry, we get the very latest on the rise in COVID numbers here in Ireland. as a highly contagious new COVID-19 variant spread. How prepared is Ireland for an increase in viruses such as COVID and RSV this winter? Well, joining us with more on this is Professor at the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College, Dublin, Kingston Mills. Kil Kingston, you're very welcome Thank back. You. We're back talking about COVID. Are there a lot of new variants out there? Is there a lot of COVID back in the country? Do we have a handle on the numbers? There's certainly new variants. Um, and these variants are very different from the predecessors. They're all derived from the Omicron strain, but the, the particular one um, uh, that is, is problematic uh, is called Picola, and it's got subvariants as well, which originated in Denmark in August, but is now spreading throughout Europe and, and North America. And is it's it presenting differently? Well, it's not presenting very differently, but it's very transmissible. And um, you know, one of the symptoms that seems to be to the fore with this uh, variant is fatigue. So the virus um, not only affects the, the lungs and upper airways, but also can disseminate it even into the brain. And some of the sort of neurological and, and also cardiac complications can be severe in people who are, haven't got any immunity, either through previous infection or vaccination. In terms of the immunisation that many of us will have um, received at this point, are we protected against strains like that? Well, there is a new version of the vaccine that's now available, which will protect against this variant. But the uptake hasn't been great. I, mean, I think only about 230,000 so far have got the fourth um, dose, the, the third booster. Um, so it, I think people who are over 60 and underlying medical conditions should certainly get vaccinated. And that's been recommended now for all, all those in that grouping. Um, you also mentioned RSV at the minute, uh, particularly amongst kids. We're seeing a significant number of children actually having to be hospitalised with this. First yeah. of all, what is it? What are the symptoms? Respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, is uh, an, another respiratory tract um, virus that mainly affects the lower respiratory tract, the lungs, and can cause pneumonia. Very serious in infants up to three to six months of age and in older people. You know, children can be hospitalised with this with breathing difficulties and have to go into ICU. So it's a very serious illness in very young infants. And the problem with infants is that they don't have immunity themselves. And what happened during the COVID period was that um, because of all the restrictions, there wasn't much RSV during the two years of COVID. And now we're getting sort of a, a rebound effect from that. And, and there are more cases uh, this year than there have been for a number of years. Um, significant number, 433 in the last week. Um, and the, the, the children's hospitals are seeing a lot of cases of RSV right now. So it's, particularly, or it's, it's potentially very dangerous for very young children, isn't it? That's right. And um, luckily, you know, there is a vaccine um, already um, um, been approved by the European Medicines Agency. It's not yet been decided. NIAC have recommended this vaccine. It's a vaccine that's given to the mother. So it's maternal immunisation. So the mother gets the vaccine, passes on the antibody that protects the child through the placenta or breast milk. So... The child can be um, protected for up to six months if the mother gets vaccinated. Now, this is a vaccine that's already in use in the US and some European countries, and NIAC have, have approved its use here, but it's not yet been um, put on the, the table by the um, Department of Health. 
In terms of COVID, just to go back to that, is there a bit of complacency about COVID at the moment? I mean, you hear that phrase, no swab, no prob. Is that the attitude of too many people? Yeah, think? I think people got fed up with um, with um, being told, um, you know, to test and to isolate and, and all the restrictions around COVID. And, and then I think when the numbers dropped during, um, you know, the greater part of this year, people thought it was was more or less over. But there, there is a sort of a worry that this winter we might have, you know, a, a bit of a rebound. I don't think it would be anything like as serious as it was in previous winters because of the immunity conferred by both the vaccine and by, by previous infections. But um, people are not testing the way they were when we were in the height of the pandemic. And that's, I suppose, understandable. In, in the, the, the risk is perceived as not being as great as it was. And yet people are still, it's still recommended that you isolate for your five days as an adult, three days as a child, if you do have the COVID virus. I mean, it's still a very transmissible. In fact, the variants we have now are more transmissible than the ones we had a year or two ago. So in fact, if you get COVID, it's very easy to transmit it to, to somebody else. So you really, you should get, um, um, you should isolate, but you also should get vaccinated. All right, Kingston Mills, thank you for that update. That's it from us. Lots more tonight's show tomorrow at 10. See you then. Bye-bye.